Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. I hope I have had a chance to meet most of you, but if I haven't, my name is Tom, and I know we're all displaying name tags today, so it's a way of helping each other, because if you haven't seen each other for a few months, it's embarrassing to say, what was your name again? This morning, you're just like a champ. Hi, Tom. And you're like, wow, amazing, you remembered my name. (laughs) It's great to be with you this morning. Well, we're talking about crazy ideas. History is littered with them. Crazy ideas, that is. Have you heard some of them in your time? Maybe seen a few come and go? Most crazy ideas failed, right? Because they were, well, crazy. Yeah. Um, Either nobody wanted them, like the cigarette umbrella. Never flew. Or they were simply impractical and maybe even a bit frightening, like the vacuum beauty helmet. I'm not sure what was going on there, and I'm not sure how she was expected to breathe in there either, but I don't think it flew. But then there were the crazy ideas that were only considered crazy because they were so far ahead of their time. They were pushing people into new territory. They were smashing old paradigms. Maybe you can think of some of those crazy ideas, like that crazy idea that... Edison fellow had an idea that was deemed, quote, a conspicuous failure by commentators of his day. That is the incandescent light bulb. We all know how that turned out. What a failure, hey? What a crazy idea. Totally impractical. (laughs) Or bicycles. Yeah, what a fad. You know, in the 1890s, they experienced a a brief burst of popularity, but then the interest in biking just fell off. In fact, by 1902, a writer for the Washington Post called bicycling a passing fancy. Experts declared that, quote, the popularity of the wheel is doomed. (sighs) Well, and then there's the hugely crazy idea of digging shipping canals. I mean, the idea of the Suez Canal had been batted around literally for hundreds of years by a number of visionary, a.k.a. crazies, but it was never built. I mean, who could do it, seriously? Until, of course, over a span of 10 years, the French and the Egyptians did it in the mid-19th century. There we go. This crazy idea connected the Mediterranean and Red Seas through a series of existing lakes, They cut the route from the Arabian Sea to London by approximately 8,900 kilometers. In 2020, over 50 ships traveled through the Suez Canal every day. And in case we ever forgot how important the Suez Canal was, a sandstorm-battered barge reminded us just last March to the tune of $9.6 billion lost in trade for six days while it was stuck. (laughs) We all kind of watched and thought, wow, I didn't even remember there was a Suez Canal. And then, like, things we'd ordered from Amazon weren't showing up. (laughs) 
Of course, other canal ideas were just that, crazy ideas. Our famous local failure, overseen by none other than Mr. Bailey Groman himself. Yes, our winery is named after him, one of the wineries. Um, That failure can still be seen at something we call Canal Flats. You perhaps have driven through there. Some of you are from there. His attempt was to join the Kootenai and the Columbia Rivers, but it came to nothing. Actually, uh, not completely true. Two vessels did pass through this canal over a span of eight years, and the second boat got so stuck in the lock that the captain used dynamite to get clear of it. And it wasn't long before the canal had collapsed in on itself, and perhaps we can say, thankfully, the Kootenai and the Columbia are which are flowing in opposite, opposite directions at that point, um, where they're only a kilometer apart, they remain a kilometer apart. Well, our history can dredge up some crazy ideas, right? Many of them failed and forgotten ideas, but some of them that succeeded and we could say changed everything. But there's one idea that tops them all as the craziest idea yet, an idea that was so far outside of what people wanted, what people expected, what people were looking for, an idea that is still deemed to be by many a failure or maybe a fad, an idea that seems impractical, even impossible, pie-in-the-sky stuff that will never, ever really get off the ground. And what is that crazy idea to which I am referring? Look around you. It's the crazy idea of us. The crazy idea of the church. No, seriously, look around. Because you're looking at what might be the craziest thing happening in the world today. You don't believe me. You think these people are normal. You think it's normal to be together. To be who God has made us to be, but it's true. It's actually a crazy idea to think that God looked out over his world with all of its array of families and nations and languages and ethnicities, all these different backgrounds, all these different experiences across time, across space, many at odds with one another, many at war with each other, despising each other. And God then thinks, I know. I'm going to make them all part of one big family. You know how crazy that was? How crazy that is? And if that wasn't crazy enough, then God decided he would give his new family a new character, a way of being family in a very specific way. His family would be a united family. They would be made one. They would be a holy family that actually looked like him and loved like him and, 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 actually like tasted and smelled and well, when you were around them, they sort of looked like God. And also a family that was sent by him to represent God to the world, to represent his purposes. When you think about that, the church is a pretty crazy idea. Now, of course, when God dreamed up the church, he wasn't thinking of an organization or a religious group or some denominational or some wing, but rather he was thinking of the church as the people of God, his people who'd been rescued from death by his son, Jesus, who'd been united in love and renewed by the Holy Spirit and reinstated as God's images in the world. 
And so for the next three weeks here in September, we're going to explore this crazy idea of the church using three historical identifiers that we've used before. Typically there's four, but I'm kind of collapsing two of them. The idea that God has created us a church to be one, to be holy, and to be apostolic, which just means sent. Each week, we're going to see how crazy this idea is. We're going to look into scripture together. We're going to acknowledge our current reality and even have some time of discussion amongst ourselves. And we're going to look again at the genius of God who is sticking to his plan, no matter how crazy it looks, and doing it for our good and for the good of the world. And so first, God's crazy idea of making one people united in Christ. Let's pray as we dive into scripture today. Lord Jesus, the fact that you have made us one on the cross through your death, through your resurrection, and through the gift of your spirit is something that we can only barely catch a glimpse of. And yet that is your desire, that is your accomplishment on our behalf. And so this morning as we look into your word, and as we try to wrestle with what this means for us practically, would you guide us now? Open our hearts and minds to you and to each other, to where you're leading us. And would you, would you make us more in reality, which you've already made us through the cross, which is one in you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we find the startling plan of one family actually all over the place in the Bible. But few places put it quite as succinctly or clearly as Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 28. I'm going to read it, but feel free to look it up if you'd like, online or on your phone or in your Bibles. This is what it says, Galatians 3, 26 to 28. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have, been, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Because of our place in history, um, we often miss just how explosive, how crazy this actually would have rung on the ears of someone in the first century. In the Greco-Roman world, into which Paul dropped this little bomb called Galatians, there were three divisions that kept everybody in line. Everybody knew where they sat in society and who they deferred to and who they could kick around based on these three divisions. Ethnic, and that's highlighted here, Jew and Gentile. Economic, slave-free, as well as rich, poor, a few other things. And then male-female, biological, sexual. And so if you were a Jewish male, but you were also a slave, then you might have ranked higher than a female slave, though lower than a you know, Roman freedmen or maybe a Roman slave, certainly lower than a female Roman freedwoman, you know. You sat somewhere and you knew it. Now, the division between Jew and Gentile was the primary division that Jesus' death overcame um, that was a source of constant challenge 
for the church in the first, let's say, 50, maybe even 100 years of God's new family. I mean, the fact that God had planned to bring together Jew and Gentile. Gentile just means everybody who's not Jewish. Um, That was clearly foretold in the prophets. But by Jesus' day, the lines had hardened up. And there was a lot of us and them going on. Uh, On both sides. A lot of us and them, and they're, they're over there. We kind of we go around each other. We have interactions as we have to, but no more than we need to. And there was a lot of mutual disdain practiced. It was the Holy Spirit then who pushed these early followers of Jesus into one family. We know as the story rolls out in Acts, we've looked at it even just recently, it was the Holy Spirit who pushed these early Jewish followers into accepting the fact that, oh man, shucks, Ah, that Gentiles are getting into, right? Because look at that. They got the Holy Spirit just like we did. Who saw that coming? (laughs) And so the Holy Spirit, through the work of sending people and using persecution and various things, was bringing in Gentiles into this primarily Jewish Christian community, followers of Jesus. And they're trying to figure out then what that means. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. And he's very specifically talking about Jew and Gentile. He's made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Out of the two. You hear that? His purpose was to create one new, I'm reading from Ephesians 2, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, referring again to Jew and Gentile, thus making peace and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Paul, and he is part of a much longer passage where he's going on and on and on about the same thing. These two groups have been, who have been at odds with each other through Jesus' death, they've been made part of the same family. But working that out on the ground, like, was a challenge, to say the least. It represented the single greatest challenge of the early church. I mean, how can faithful, Torah-observant Jews and newly converted Romans actually be, in practice, the one people of God together? Like, how do you do potlucks? Everybody wants to do the potluck, and how do we do the potluck? And what weekend are you talking about? And how do we do life? And this looked and felt to everyone as certainly outside, like the craziest idea of them all. And so much of the New Testament letters, when you understand that this challenge is sitting in the background, you, you start to understand what ha- what's happening in Romans. What's happening in Galatians? What's happening in Ephesians? This sits in the background of so much of what is going on. God has made one new people for himself, and now the Holy Spirit has got his work cut out for him of actually making this real in reality, like in the practice, the day, the week, the, the worship life, the, 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 the living of life together, the caring for the poor, and, and following Jesus, figuring out what this means now as the one new humanity that God has done, created through Jesus. Well, that was a lot of hard work, a massive undertaking by the Holy Spirit. But these divisions that God was overcoming in the body of Christ, this newly formed, these little groups that were meeting all over the Roman Empire, 
throwing everything into disarray. I mean, quite honest, it was, it was confusing for especially people from the outside. These divisions weren't just ethnic. It wasn't just Jew-Gentile, though that was a big deal. It was also economic. It was also sexual. It touched all these boundaries. See, it's important to understand that in Greco-Roman society in particular, these categories of people, this is how Roman society functioned. This is how it structured itself so that, according to Roman society, it could flourish. This was how things, you know, Romans had very, a very strong sense of family values, which the gospel questioned. Because in Roman society, family values were delineated according to these very clear hierarchical relationships. And that was the bedrock. So much so that when the gospel of Jesus Christ declared all people one in Christ, this was seen as a threat. A dangerous idea that could subvert the authority and the peace of society. And we actually see this... uh, all over the place. And all, uh, a lot of ancient literature, these people that are, we call them now, social philosophers, commentators, moral philosophers, various folks, they would often address what was known as a household code. And what they're basically trying to tell uh, people is how they need to live. And what they're always doing is they're addressing the man of the house, who was called the paterfamilias, the head of the household. And they're telling him what he needs to do to keep A, his wife in line, B, his kids in line, and see his slaves in line, right? You see it all over the place. If you read the social philosophers, they're all doing the same thing. And they always address those three relationships, husband and wife, father and kids, and master and slave. And they're always talking to the guy, and they're always telling the guy what to do to make sure everybody else is in line in their house so that they're good little Romans, and then society works, right? Okay, so with that in mind then, isn't it interesting how we find in the Bible, Paul and Peter talking about the same groups of people, but doing it in a way that is so subversive and so explosive and so powerful that it actually threatens Roman culture. Because what we see is Peter and Paul, they talk to husbands and wives, they talk to fathers and kids, they talk to masters and slaves, and they're helping them understand how following Jesus is now expressed as being part of this one family of God and how it changes everything. I mean, it's pretty, uh, when you understand and when you read the other household codes, what everybody else was saying to everybody, you know, all the advice that everyone was getting, and then you read what the Bible says, you begin to understand for the first time, whoa, this is powerful stuff. Now, we read the household codes today. Wives, submit your husbands. We think, give me a break, right? Um, I know you do. When you understand the context, you begin to see, oh, there's something else going on here. Something that's so subversive and so dangerous and so crazy. So first of all, everyone is told, that we are called, this is in Ephesians 5, the way Paul puts it, at the heading of it all, before he even addresses the household codes, he says, everyone should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now that is, that is, we let that roll past us like that's nothing. That is crazy talk. Do you know who he's talking to? Do you know who's gathered at you know, a so-and-so's house on a Sabbath or on a Sunday for worship and they're, they're learning. There's a slave sitting there. Don't tell him his master's going to submit to him out of reverence for Christ. Are you crazy? You know, we've got to feel this a little bit. So 
That's the overarch. Everyone should submit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the, we're, we're now brought into the family of God, and we mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, in Ephesians 5, Paul then applies. Like, what does that look like? So then he begins to address the same three groups that we hear about. Wives, husbands, uh, fathers, kids, and uh, masters, slaves. And so then the second thing that's crazy is that he addresses the very people. Like he addresses the wives. In fact, they get addressed first. He addresses the kids. He addresses the slaves. That was not done, people. Again, we read that and we think, wow, this is like stodgy stuff here. We do not realize how earth-shattering that was. That the letter that was being read from the Apostle Paul was addressing a woman, addressing a slave, giving them dignity, giving them choice, holding them up and saying, now you can live as a new creation of Christ. It may not change immediately your circumstance, but it's going to change the nature of the way you experience it. And he's challenging them to live out their newfound, new creation lives in Christ, uh, to look at how they submit to one another for Christ in a whole new way. Now, that's shocking. But then third, what is said to the husband, father, master, same guy, remember, is that they're told to love their wives. It's not something the philosophers of their day told them to do. They have to love their wife. Love her? She's for having kids. I'll find someone else to love, which they did. Love your wife? Treat your children with kindness? When you interact with your slaves, remember that you've got a master too that you're going to be accountable to when you die, you know? And by the way, that slave is now your brother in Christ. Everything has been turned on its head because of this reality that in Christ, these divisions, while they still exist, they no longer define the relationship within the family of God. We are now one in Christ. We are now able to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so those social divisions and those cultural categories no longer are determinative of who's who and who's the boss and who we defer to or who we don't or where you sit or where you don't. All that stuff, it all falls away because of what Jesus has done. The gospel of Jesus Christ is lobbed into this deeply divided, highly segregated society, and it just blows the walls down and creates something brand new. And it was earth-shattering. What was going on in those little groups in, 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 throughout the Roman Empire, what was going on there was so dangerous, so subversive, so countercultural that we can barely even feel it today to understand what it meant that slaves were worshiping alongside their master as they worshiped their new king, Jesus. Wow! It's incredible. And for us to uh, begin to get a feeling of what it was like to be in one of those groups when, when, when these letters came in, to think what it was like to gather, you know, a wife from this household, but her husband doesn't follow Jesus and he isn't here. And these few slaves from this other household, and maybe they came with their master because he's become a follower of Jesus, but the wife wants nothing to do with it. And, and these, diff- these odd collections of people who are, maybe they're not slaves, maybe they're freed people, but they're actually so poor and so fragile because of the way the Roman society worked. It was often better to be a slave than it was to be free on a daily level. But they've all come together. And throughout the week, they've been told, some of them have been kicked around, and other ones have been elevated, and the pressures that have been on them to perform and to keep 
the category and all, and to come together into a place where they are now accepted as a brother, as a sister, where they are now linking arms in arm, arm in arm, and they're worshiping by the Spirit, the one who has made them one. Game changer. Earth shattering. Everything changes from there. The ripple effects of that actually brought about the end of slavery. The ripple effects, effects of that is what brought equality to women. I mean, it's the ripple effects of these things that changed the nature of the world as this gospel idea began to be worked out in the church. Beautiful. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all children of God through faith. All of you, you just think, think, everyone's thinking, oh yeah, I'm a slave, I've been baptized. I'm a woman, I've been baptized. I'm a man, I've been baptized. I'm a Jew, I've been baptized. I'm a Gentile. I'm a... We are all clothed with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't mean that those categories didn't continue to exist in some way. It doesn't mean that that isn't part of your story. It just means that those things no longer define your place in the body, your pecking order in the kingdom. No. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, what about us? What about now? This is still God's vision and has been for the last 2,000 years. And God is utterly committed to his crazy idea of a united family, of a one church, of a people who've been brought together instead of torn apart. And yet, let's be honest... The history of the Christian church is a history of division, isn't it? And we see divisions continue to infect us. Whether we look back in our history or let's be honest, whether we just look around our world today. And so is God's crazy idea just that, a crazy idea? In what ways have we forgotten that this is his plan and allowed cultural ideals or political ideologies or economic realities or ethnic prejudices to influence our actual lived experience as the one people of God. Maybe, maybe, let, it, maybe let me ask it this way of you. Where does God's crazy idea of one people challenge you the most? Like where does it uh, make you squirm, make you uncomfortable? when you think about what Jesus has done to make us one? Okay, that's way too personal of a question for you to discuss at your tables. So how about this? What, because I want you to talk at your tables for a moment. What are the primary social divisions that you see keeping people apart today? Like, like, as you look around you, as you think of your friends, as you think of our town, our valley, as you think of what's going on in our world, what do you see? What are the primary social divisions that are keeping people apart today? I want to invite you to turn at your tables and just talk about that. What kind of divisions do you see? Those of you who are online, I invite you to write that in the chat or discuss it with whoever you're sitting with. And if you're alone today, I encourage you to pull out a piece of paper and jot down some ideas. What are the primary social divisions that are keeping us apart today, that are infecting us, influencing us? Go ahead. Discuss for a few minutes at your tables.
Okay. How is your conversations going? You want to keep talking, don't you? <clears throat> Which is perfect. Hey, if you're willing, if you're willing to shout out a few of the things you talked about at your tables, I'll repeat them for those of us who are listening by audio or on, on camera today. Uh, what are some of the primary social divisions that are keeping us apart today? Can you shout them out? Ignorance, okay. Fear, politics, vaccination status. Bring it on, yeah, what are they? Race, fast food choices. A lot of judgment around here for that. Keep going. Hey, we joke, but in certain circles. Okay, let's keep going. Claus. Lots of information, very little wisdom. Loss of the ability to dialogue. Yeah, on serious issues. Yeah, how do we even talk about it? Thanks, Olin. Cameron. LGBTQ, absolutely, yes. Yeah, where we fall on that, how we understand, even, again, discussing it, yeah? What are the other social divisions that are keeping us apart? Language, yeah, yeah. Okay, so certainty in beliefs and maybe the inability to accept other people's beliefs. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Political views, yes. Racism or how we think about race, yeah, yeah, Cameron. Okay, cultural pride, and then you're talking about specifically maybe what people think or say about the war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Ageism, yeah. There are lots, okay, so we could keep going. But I think we begin to get a feeling of, like, there are a lot of things in our world that are telling us how we should or who we should be with or not be with or agree with or fight with or disdain or get rid of or whatever. There's a lot. There's a lot. And so the challenge for us as, well, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I'm not going to assume all of you are. Some of you are trying to figure out what that means. Well, we're all trying to figure out what that means, but some of us have still yet decided whether we're going to follow this Jesus or not. But he is committed to making one people. And we sometimes, I think, look at the divisions in our society and think, well, ours are way bigger than, no, 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 they weren't, they aren't. The divisions that we're facing in the early church, the divisions that f- faced our brothers and sisters down through the ages, the divisions we face now, every generation we have faced the f- same question. How do we live into the reality that Jesus has made us one in a world that is insistent upon keeping us divided, keeping us at each other's throats, or someone's boot on somebody else's throat? How do we do this? Jesus has called us. He's made us one. And called us to live in, in, in such a way that our oneness trumps everything else. And the very first thing we need to do as we think about how do we implement this today is the very first thing we have to do is pray. It starts there. It starts with our heart. It starts with prayer. It starts with repentance. It starts with acknowledging the ways in which we have let cultural divisions and categories Influence the way that I love another person, another follower of Jesus, another person in the street. Uh, it, it starts with me. It starts with us being willing to be honest about the ways that we've kept others at arm's length. Maybe, maybe other church groups, other believers. 
other people that we're not quite willing to admit are believers, but we think they might be. Darn it. It starts with prayer. And so, you know where this is going. You, you got to pray. We got to pray. And so what I invite you to do just for a few minutes now, it doesn't, I know that not all of you, maybe not most of you, are comfortable praying out loud in a group. I get it. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable this morning. Well, maybe just a little, but not too much. Not, not so much that you wouldn't come back next week. Um, would one or two of you at your table pray? Just pray that the reality which Jesus has already accomplished to make us one would become more of a reality in our lived lives together. That's the prayer I'm asking you to pray. So would you turn to your tables and just for a moment, just one or two of you at your tables, just pray that we would experience in reality the oneness that Jesus has accomplished for us. Take a moment and pray. Those of you who are with us online, I encourage you to do the same. Let's just pray together. Right and pray and I'll close our time in a joint prayer. Holy Spirit of God, we know that it is your will that we be one. And so even as we pray today that you would make us one in reality, in our lived experience, that you would uh, reveal in us the things that need to change, ideas, uh, ways of being, ways of thinking, ways of living that need to change in us so that this becomes a lived reality. We know that we're praying according to your will today. That is your will. And so we do ask that your will would be done in us, in our lives, in our church, in your body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got to keep praying. I think we've got to make that uh, an item of prayer, a, co- a continued item of prayer. That's the first implementation of, of this fact, that God has this crazy idea of making us one family. The second, it's also very practical. Here's the deal. We cannot be one in theory. We can only be one in practice. Which means that we have to put being one together somewhere in our lives, (laughs) somewhere in our practice, somewhere in our calendars. And this doesn't mean just bouncing in once in a while. It doesn't mean saying hi at the grocery store, although please say hi at the grocery store. It means actually structuring our lives in such a way that we are actually one together. It does mean gathering weekly or at least regularly for worship and teaching together. It does mean making a commitment to getting close with someone where we can actually share with each other what is going on in our lives and pray for one another as we've been encouraging you to do with spiritual friendships. But I'm going to highlight one very important opportunity, which I've already mentioned this morning, that is coming up for all of us, and that is the nuts and bolts, very practical, put it on the ground idea of getting in a small group. How boring is that? How normal? (laughs) How shocking, I know. But seriously, I think that we, if we learned anything in the last couple years, and I hope we did, it is that we need to live more closely with a few people. We need to be in the trenches 
with brothers and sisters, where we're learning what it means to follow Jesus together, not in theory, but in practice. And so I am issuing a very strong challenge to you to consider being part of a small group to the point at which you have to say no to some other things in your life. Just to be candid with you, I said no to something I wanted to do last week, as in something I wanted to do this fall. I said no to it because it would have made being part of a small group hard. I said no to it. Something I wanted to do. Did I, did I mention that? Something other people wanted me to do. In fact, I was feeling quite a bit of pressure around it. And I, I say that not to say that, you know, not to hold myself up. I say that to say that I think we're going to have to make a decision to be part of each other's lives in a practical way that will require us to say no to some other things. But in order for us to really grow together, we need to be together. In order for us to practice what it means to be one in Christ, we actually got to get close enough where there's some friction, some sparks. It is super easy to love you when I've met you, I've had a nice conversation, and then I've left you. You're easy to love. And I'm easy to love too. But get together with me week after week after week. And you may find me more difficult to love. Ask Tanil. Doing it for 26 years. She's a saint. We've got to do life together. In order to do that, one of the very practical ways, one of the best ways, is that, yes, we gather in this setting, but let's be honest about the limitations of this setting. This setting allows us to worship God together as one voice. Beautiful. It allows us to learn together, receive teaching. It allows us to serve together. It allows us to do some stuff with our kids. It's good, but it's not enough. And that's what we learned through COVID. It is not enough. You will not grow as a Christian very much doing this only. You won't. Can't. Get into a group with people that you actually walk with, that you actually let into your life, you actually listen to and learn from, and rub against And you will find yourself growing in Christ in the way that he has created us to grow. And so I just encourage you over the next few weeks, we're going to be urging you to sign up for a small group. Stepping back just for a moment from my high pressure sales pitch. I'm actually just, I'm genuinely wanting to know where you're at with it. I'm genuinely wanting to know, are are you willing to try this again? Because we're coming back out of COVID. Some people are still pretty hesitant about it. And I just want to know as we go into the fall. I believe it's crucial. We as a leadership team believe it's crucial that we get back into small groups. Got to happen. But I need to know honestly from you, if you're sitting there going, not a chance in that I'm getting back in a small group yet. I want to know that. Or if you're feeling tentative, I want to know that. We want to know, okay? So we're really trying to get an honest assessment where you're at with small groups while at the same time twisting your arm. In love, because it's good for you. Listen, friends, God's crazy idea will hold out. He will accomplish his purposes. He is not giving it up. However divided the world may look, Jesus has already finished his work of uniting all people as one in him, and it's the Holy Spirit's job. Wow, what a job. I'm so glad he's so tenacious to see that idea come true in us and in our world. And it's going to be for our good. It is for our good now. 
It will be for your good this fall. It's for your good and the good of the world that we become the newly created people of God who are one in Christ. And in the end, it will be glorious, a people united in Christ and yet displayed for all the world to see in their wonderful diversity, kind of like glittering diamonds in the light of the sun. This is the people of God that are envisioned. Even as the apostle John in his revelation, he hears the people of God being counted out. And when he turns to look, what does he see in Revelation chapter seven? After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Did you hear that? A great multitude, one in Christ Jesus. From every nation, now one in citizenship. From every tribe, members of one family. From every people, one in love. And in every language, united in worship of the one who sits in the throne. The one who has made us his. Who has made us one. As the worship team comes to lead us in a final song, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, this that you accomplished on the cross is still just barely at our fingertips. We, we encounter a little bit of it. We taste a little bit. We see a little bit of it. And we are praying, Holy Spirit, that you would do it in us. And so start with us, Lord. Start with me. I pray that this would become a lived reality in us. I pray that we would take concrete steps, overcome our fears, overcome our worries, overcome our distractions, overcome our prejudices, overcome our social anxiety, and help us, Lord Jesus, to be your one people. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.